A very, very good morning to each and every one of you. I'm, I can uh, literally repeat the introduction that Josh gave because it is my first time being on the rostrum after a long time as well. Uh, and it's always a moment of, of, of excitement, you know, being able to share a message from the Word of God from the pulpit rather than uh, from behind the screen. And I hope that I won't have to do that again prayerfully. But um, it's so good to see each and every one of you here. And for those of you who are not able to be with us in person and you're joining online, it's great to also have you here with us virtually. And today, um, I thought I'll start with a quick question. Very simple question. I don't think it's very complicated. How many of us here are over 90 years old? Very good. All right. I don't think anyone here is 90 years old. Otherwise, or maybe you are and you look very, very young and I don't know. Uh, but my grandma is 91 this year. Okay? She's 91 this year, going to go 92 next year. Um, but if you are 90 years old and you don't want to share it, perhaps you might remember the events. Uh-oh. Slides are not working. All right. Perhaps you might remember the events of the Great Depression, yeah? the Great Depression, where during that time in 1929, not just America, but all over the world, there was very widespread unemployment. There was a huge failure of the global financial system, and there was a huge decline in global trade. Very bad times. A lot of people um, lost faith in money, basically. And what you see here is people lining up, not just lining up, but crowding the banks, trying to get their cash out because they don't believe that the bank is going to honor their promise to keep the cash safe anymore. Maybe if you're slightly younger, by about 10 years, you may remember the events that transpired during World War II. A lot of horrific things happened during that time. And if you read your history books, you might remember that Adolf Hitler was billed as one of the culprits, one of the main instigators for starting this global conflict. And I'm pretty sure if you have not personally lived through these events, you've probably heard stories of it maybe from your mother or your grandmother. And again, uh, my grandmother loves telling stories about these things. Uh, fun fact, she does not eat sweet potatoes. And the reason is because when she was hiding from the Japanese soldiers in the forest, that's what she ate every day, every meal. So I made the mistake of offering it to her once. She looked at me and said, no, I've had enough of my lifetime already. So I've learned that you know, that was a horrific time for her. But I'm pretty sure that none of us are over 600 you know, and 70 years old because if you are that old, you may have experienced the events of the Black Death, a horrific plague that happened a really long time ago. But it is one of the worst um, plagues or, or viruses that have ever destroyed you know, the, the huge amount of uh, people. And the estimates at the time was about, you know, the plague took about 200 million lives. By comparison, COVID-19 pandemic, which we are living in today, has taken about 5 million lives. And 5 million lives is nothing to scoff at. It's nothing to laugh about, but man, that's a far cry from 200 million lives. It just shows you how fragile our lives are. Everything that I've just mentioned, all the three events and some of the people that I've just mentioned, have one thing in common. These are events and these are people who have completely changed the world. The things that happened, the things that they did have altered the lives of millions, have changed the course of history. And while we're on this subject, I want to introduce to you one more world changer, the biggest world changer of all, who has affected all human lives, past, present, and future for all time. Yes, you know who I'm talking about. His name is Jesus Christ. There's no other person living in this world, past, present, or future, who has had such a lasting, permanent, and positive world-changing effect. Than this man and his teachings. The world 
was changed by him, not in the same way as Adolf Hitler, you know, through militaristic means. He wasn't some kind of prominent scientist. He didn't create the atomic bomb. He was no politician, but he changed the world through his teachings and his example and his life. But here's the interesting thing about his teachings. Some of them sound a little bit weird. Very, very pushing. You know, today's title is about turning the world upside down. And we call these paradoxes. Here are some examples of paradoxes that I have to share. Some, sometimes people will tell you, you save money by spending it. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense at all. You know, I see Emily shaking her head. No, she completely disagrees. And I agree with her. It doesn't make sense. You know, maybe husbands, your wife might tell you this. You save money by spending it. Think twice. All right? And the other one, I know one thing it, that is, or it's that I know nothing. So what do you know? Do you know one thing or do you know nothing? But this is a common quote that people have that is also a paradox. And I believe that the three paradoxes that we will examine today from the scriptures that Jesus teaches through his word will be rewarding for us to examine. And let's see what lessons we can draw from it. I want to start today by talking very quickly about this one question. I'm going to give you some time to think about it, right? The question that I want to share with you today and give you a minute to think about is, are you a wealthy person? Are you a wealthy person? I'm not going to ask for your answer. Don't worry. You don't have to raise your hand and say, yes, I'm wealthy. All right. I want you to be honest with yourself. Consider this question. It doesn't matter how you define the word wealthy. I want you to think about it. It's not a trick question. Do you think you are a wealthy person? For many people in this world, they feel a sense of security when they are able to work. Many of us here have jobs. You, know, you are able to go to work, earn an honest income, earn a living, and then you provide the basic necessities for your loved ones. And perhaps if we have savings and we have excess money, we can store it at a bank. We can invest it. If you want to know more about investments, you can speak to Samuel or Brother Andrew. They're very good at it. But if you have excess money, you can do these things and you can protect the money or you know, invest the money that you have and perhaps grow it. But here's the thing about investments and money. The question that I want to ask is, how safe are they? How safe are they? How would you not know, or how do you know if perhaps the money that you have in the bank and back in the days when our grandparents didn't believe in the bank, they put the money in the Milo tin. And then they open up one day and find that it's all eaten by termites. Not very safe. But even money in the bank can be stolen, can be cheated, can be swindled, can be scammed. You have a lot of investments. Maybe tomorrow they go up in smoke because somebody was greedy and they committed insider trading or the company just fell because they were falsifying their accounts. Maybe some people lose all their money because of gambling and greed. So the question that I have for you today is, how safe is, is your money, really? How safe is your money? Today, I want to talk to you about the first paradox, which is Christians are people who are poor, yet are rich. In, in today's financial standards and, and the way we talk about life and money, can you really be poor and rich at the same time? I mean, it's either one or the other. You know? There's this segregation that we have in, in Malaysia. You are B40, uh, M20, and T20. Uh, and recently, because Annabelle has been trying to apply for PTPN exemption, we've always been trying to figure out what's the latest classification of T20 and whether we are almost there or very far from it. Yeah, and so we are, we are far from it, don't worry. Okay? So, the money that you have, my friends and my brethren, it's not a 100% feel-safe guarantee. If you keep it there, you invest it, tomorrow it might go up in smoke. And this is what we read 
in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Let me read for you briefly in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And we have known personally some people who have invested money, and maybe they've lost it. Um, so, so this is Jesus' message to you. The money that you have, earthly money, isn't safe. The next question I want to ask you as well, how do you measure your life? And I want to illustrate this question and what we've been talking about, about money so far with this story in Luke chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles open, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to do a little bit of reading here. And what's, what's interesting about this story is that you will see that Jesus was approached by a man and this man asked him, Jesus, can you divide the inheritance that I have between me and my brother? And Jesus told him in, in Luke chapter 12, and verse 14, that I'm not the right person. I'm not who made me a judge or arbitrator to do this. And we're going to continue from verse 15. So let's read together from Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. And we will see that Jesus starts with a warning to him. Luke 12 verse 15. And he, meaning Jesus, said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I want to make a couple of important observations from this parable. First, I want to say that this man is very successful. He is successful. And he is what many of us or many people in the world want to be. They want to work well. They want to be successful in their business, in their work. They want to have a good enough pile of savings that they can relax and enjoy. This, this man is living the life. He can expand his business, he can have more crops, he can sit back and relax for perhaps the future years. But that's, that's observation number one. Observation number two, Jesus Christ still called him fool. Jesus Christ still called him a fool. Jesus didn't say that him being a productive man is foolish. Jesus didn't say that because this man is rich, he is foolish, that he is evil. And you know, similarly for me and you, I don't want you to... to Take away the message that, oh, Christians cannot get promotion. Christians cannot get rich. If we work well and we deserve a promotion, that's good. We deserve a reward for our labor. If we are business owners and we are successful in growing our business, that's not evil. If we spend our hard-earned money, take our family on a vacation or a meal from time to time, that's not evil. But where this rich man has failed is that if we only work for ourselves, if we are selfish, if we don't care about anyone else, if we don't care about God, then let me tell you, are you truly rich? The Bible says that you are a fool and you are truly poor. And the reason is because God doesn't measure rich, riches the same way that we do. You and I may measure riches by how much money we have in our bank, what's our total asset, how many cars and, and properties we have, but God doesn't care about any of that. Read again in verse 15 with me. Luke 12 verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. 
This is the message of Christ that turns the world upside down. Because let me tell you, many people in the world are chasing after money. They value their lives with money. They look at other people and be like, I wish I can be like him. I wish I can be like uh, Bill Gates or Elon Musk. I want to be as rich as they are because they have a lot of money and I'm not like them. God tells you, that's a foolish way to compare your life. That's not the way we should value our lives. The message of Christ is this. If you are poor in this world, if you have no money in your bank account, let me tell you the message that Jesus Christ has for you is you can be the richest man in heaven. And if you are the richest man on earth, let me tell you, you can be the poorest man in the eyes of God as well. I want to close this point with a couple of practical suggestions on how we can make our first million. Everybody wants to make their first million. How you can make your first million in the bank of heaven. Firstly, let's think about our treasure. What do you treasure in your heart? What is your treasure? Some would say, my treasure is my wife. Uh, yeah, I treasure my wife. Okay, just let me just put it out there. I treasure my wife. Some would say, my treasure is my car. There are people who love cars. They have a huge collection of cars. A lot of sultans, I know, have a lot of cars. Maybe that's their treasure. My treasure is... Uh, my horse. Some people have a pedigree horse. I, I have no idea. But whatever your treasure is, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20 to 21 is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What it is that you treasure, that is your longing. That is your desire. You're going to pursue after it. You're going to give your effort into it. You're going to seek after it. You're going to be like a treasure hunter. And let me tell you, it's not difficult to see where our treasure is right now. When you're working during the day and you have random thoughts about, oh yeah, I'm looking forward to doing something during the weekend. What is that something? What is it something that you're looking forward to doing the moment you come home from work and you have free time? You know, Jolene is like taking a nap. Taking a nap is fine, you know. It's absolutely fine. No one's going to judge you on that. But the thing is, what is it that you're looking forward to do every single day, all the time when you have free time? And it's God on the list. What is that one thing that you miss out in the day or in the week that if you miss out on it, it's a big deal to you? Squid Game episode, you know, Netflix, drama, TV, hanging out with friends. What, what is it? If I miss out hanging out with my friends, will it hurt me? Perhaps. The question is, if I miss out on a date with God, will it hurt me? Is my treasure there? My friends, that's point number one. Let's think about where our treasure is. And if our treasure is not God, if God is not our treasure, let me tell you, you'll never be rich in Him. Is God our treasure? Number two, we need to consciously guard ourselves, consciously fight against the love of money. We live in a world where we are continuously bombarded by advertisements, enticements, and temptations to spend more and spend and spend. Um, I'm sure many of us here use Shopee and Lazada. And you will get a monthly reminder to spend on the Special number days, one one two two three three four four. you know, give you discount, vouchers and everything. And the best one is coming up, 11-11. So don't forget, here's a kind reminder. But also a kind reminder that our life isn't about accumulating more and more. A kind reminder that our life isn't about the, the things that it consists of. So let's be on guard against the love of money, not money in itself. That's why we read in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. And last but not least, I want to share with you that no one ever got poor by giving. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's why we read in Acts chapter 20 and verse 25. The issue with the rich man that we talked about in Luke 12 is not that he's wealthy, but it is 
what he did or did not do with his wealth. If we are blessed, if God has given us so much, let's give back to God who has given us first and make sure that other people who are around us who need that blessing are blessed by us as well. There is a beautiful proverb in Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 7 that I want to read. I think it's worthwhile examining for a while. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord and he will pay back what he has given. Can you imagine you have enough money to lend to God? Just think about it for a moment. God, who is the supreme creator in this world, who doesn't need anything to survive, and you are lending money to him. God owes you because you have done well and done right to those who are in need. And when God gives back, we can be sure that God is going to give far more than what we gave in the first place. So my friends, here's the first paradox for us to consider. Jesus Christ teaches us that Christians are people who may be poor in this world, but yet they can be very rich in Him. When we think about the world as well, at large, we talked about money, isn't it? We talked about money and the value of money. Let's talk about the other spectrum of power, which is strength and might. And here I have a picture that shows some kind of might. We call it military might. You know, this, this is a parade that's happening. And during National Day, if you turn on your television, you might see a lot of army people marching through in very uniform fashion. The big cars and big rockets. Um, the, 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 the nations are trying to display how much power they have, how proud they are in their military, especially a very militarized nation like North Korea, for example. Huge military parades. Many countries show their strength off like this, maybe sometimes to intimidate their enemies. What if you're an athlete? An athlete trains to be stronger, faster. Maybe they can shoot more accurately. Um, and perhaps their highest dream is to attend the Olympics and win the gold medal. The world values them being faster and stronger. And, but let's talk about a more relatable um, subject. In our day-to-day -day, um, conversations with people, sometimes it gets escalated. Sometimes it turns into an argument. Sometimes we get angry with people, and what happens? Maybe we lose our cool and we start shouting. We start raising our voices. We start yelling at the other person. It becomes a shouting match. And if it's uncontrolled, let me tell you, fists will start flying as well. You know, you see that in Parliament sometimes chairs will be thrown. It's it's an embarrassing sight. But that's the thing. In in the world that we live in, these are the values that many people treasure and many people champion. Be strong. Be fast, be loud, be dominant, be powerful. But on the other hand, we don't talk much about the people who are soft-spoken. We don't talk much about the people who are shy. These are the people that when you attend a dinner party, when you're sitting at a table, they don't say anything at all until you ask them, Hey, I know you've been quiet for the last one hour. How are you? What's your, what's your name? I, didn't know, I don't know your name. These are the people at that table. Some, some people might call them introverts. You know, perhaps you might meet individuals who might be living with some form of disability. They are, they are shy, they are, they are quiet, they are not confident to speak up. Um, maybe they've lost a few limbs after an accident and they are, they are, they've lost their self-confidence. And you know, Josh this morning gave, a, gave an excellent lesson and he talked a little bit about dealing with anxiety and worries. And while, we, you know, while he was comforted that there are many brethren who are remaining strong and you know, not afraid to seek for help, I also see that there are many brethren who are needing help. Many brethren who feel that they are not well supported 
and we need to look out for them. What I want to say is that in contrast to all those attributes like strength and might, people don't place high value on quietness and introverts. You know, they, 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 they don't place values on these things. They seem to be weaker, more fragile, uh, quieter, and they keep to themselves. And sometimes they are like invisible among us. We don't see them because they're, perhaps they're not making a lot of noise. But one thing I want to say, you know, you know who you are. I'm proud of the people who are in this audience who are advocating for them, who are looking out for them, and you keep it up because you are doing well. Every one of us are in either one of these two categories. Either we're in the category that we are loud and powerful, and, and maybe we're a bit quieter and shyer. There's no wrong and there's no right. But what we're here to talk about today is learning from Jesus Christ and his example. If you were to ask me which category does Jesus Christ fall into, maybe a little bit of both. But I would say that Jesus Christ is more of the gentler type, more of the secondary type. Jesus Christ was very humble. He was a well-spoken individual. He didn't walk around with a sword. He didn't walk around with gangsters by his side like, oh, you don't agree with me, I'm going to beat you up. That wasn't Jesus Christ's style. He was a man that would teach. He was a man that would persuade you. And he was a man that would go around looking for the lost, healing the sick, feeding the poor, that was the kind of person that Jesus Christ was. Now, but I, don't, but I don't believe that's all there is to Jesus Christ. I want us to turn for a while to Matthew chapter 26. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to see a very different side of Jesus Christ than what we usually read of in the Bible. Most of the time when you read about Jesus Christ, he's teaching somebody, he's, he's teaching a crowd and, and all that. But here we are reading the very last parts of his life, what's going to happen at his betrayal? I'm going to read from verse 50 to verse 55, and this is after Judas Iscariot came and kissed him on his cheek. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 15. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Verse 55, In that hour, Jesus Christ said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. Again, let's make a couple of observations from this story here. Some things are very clear. Firstly, Jesus never condones, he does not condone the use of force or violence. He did not encourage his followers to go and beat these guys up, protect me from them, you know, they're going to take me away, they're going to take me to court. Jesus Christ did not do that. When his disciples took out a sword and cut off the ear of one of the people who came, Jesus Christ protected that man. He healed the ear of that man. And, but what stands out to me the most is that Jesus Christ had an option. He had the option to summon a legion of angels to protect him. But when, even though he had that option, he chose to not use it. He chose to remain meek. He chose to remain gentle and go along to submit with God's will. He could have done it. And let me tell you, if we were put in that position... How many people would choose to summon the army of angels and whack up, you know, beat all these guys up? Perhaps many people in the world would have. 
My brethren, what I want to share with you this morning are, again, a few practical points on how we can see Christians being people who are apparently weak, but they are strengthened and they are strong in the Lord. We can follow after the example of Christ, but we can also learn from the example of Paul at the same time. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 to 10. This is an interesting passage, not because just you know Paul is talking about um, one of the sufferings that he had to endure, but Josh also referred to this passage in his earlier lesson if we were paying attention. So I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That sounds like a completely contrasting and crazy statement. You know, if you tell that to a bodybuilder, all he measures his strength and weakness is, is by how much he can lift. It's either he's strong or he's weak. But for a Christian, I may not be able to lift 200 kilograms, but let me tell you, I can be the strongest man in the eyes of the Lord at the same time. When we are faced with a situation like Paul, when we have illnesses, or maybe we are faced in a situation like Christ, Sometimes, doesn't it feel easier to just give up and give in? When there's so much happening in your life and you feel like there's so much pain, there's so much anger, I want to take revenge, I'm so tired, I want to, I want to complain and I want to whine and I want to get back at these people who have hurt me. It's so much easier to do that. But look at Jesus and look at Paul. They are showing here the example of true strength when they can have self-restraint and control. Paul demonstrated that strength that he has asked God many times, please take this pain away from me. But at the end of the day, when God said no, Paul's answer is, it's okay. I will gladly take pleasure in it because I am suffering for Christ. It's okay because I know that I can depend on God. He's going to supply me with every need anyway, even when this pain will be permanent in my life. That's Paul's message to us, that it's okay to go through suffering but it doesn't mean that we are weak because it reminds us that we can rely on God for comfort and deliverance. And Josh mentioned this earlier, you know, even Jesus Christ himself was not exempted from feeling that anguish and that pain and that sorrow when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus depended on God. Paul depended on God. And let me tell you, we can depend on God as well. We can lend, we can borrow from his strength. The next thing we can think about is let's look out for the little guy. The little guy is the guy that I talked about earlier, the quiet one, the shy one. We don't know that he's even in this auditorium, you know, you might be looking around like, hey, he's actually here and he's been here for every week, but I never noticed him. That's the little guy that we need to look out for. My friends and my brethren, sometimes in order to be strong, we need to rely on the strength of others. The tricky thing is many times the little guys, they're afraid to ask for help. 
they're shy. Maybe it's because of their pride and their fear and they, they don't want to be judged like, oh no, somebody's going to look at me and, and, and think that I'm weak. And if they're not going to reach out to us, let's open our eyes and look out for them. When you read Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, we see what Jesus Christ has to say about his mission coming to earth. Jesus said here in Mark 2, 17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus Christ was looking out for people who needed that help. And we can learn from his example as well. And last but not least, my friends, we can talk about how that there is a time and place to be strong. I'm not suggesting that Christians can never speak up. I'm not suggesting that Christians can never stand up for what they believe and defend their, their, their faith and everything. There will be times where we have to stand up and say, I disagree. I don't think that's right. I will have to, to, to turn away from what you're suggesting for me to do. There is a time and place for that, but we'll have to do it gently as well. If you read Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 to 11, we're not going to read it today, but it's the account where Jesus Christ was coming face to face with the devil. And Jesus Christ never compromised, even though the devil tempted him with many things. Jesus answered him firmly, but he never went and cursed the devil or you know, um, used violence or any, or any sort of methods. He used God's word and he was firm and he was strong. So the second paradox that we've discussed today, Christians are people who may appear to be weak, but they may be strong at the same time. The last thing I want to talk about today, and I'll spend just a little bit of time on it, is how people are sometimes alive in this world, but yet they are dead. Okay. Think about it for a moment. If you are a fan of movies or pop culture, what is that um, creature that is dead but alive? Yeah, you got it right. Zombie. Exactly. You know, a creature that's uh, dead but alive. Zombie. They walk funny, they maybe smell funny, that kind of thing. But uh, when I was thinking about this, and when I think about my previous job, what's another person who is also uh, alive but dead? You know, and I thought about, well, uh, maybe an auditor or an accountant. You know, but, but if you ask a lawyer, they'll say, yeah, lawyers are like that. You ask an engineer, they'll say, yeah, engineers are like that as well. You know, sometimes they work days without sleep, they don't need to eat, they don't need to sleep, they don't need to rest, but they can still function just like a zombie. They can walk and talk and they look, maybe sometimes smell just like zombies as well. So, there, there are a lot of people who work like this and if you ask them, how is your life? The most common response I got from my colleagues last time is, what life? I got no life. I'm like a dead person like that working. And that's the most common response that I get. If you ask students as well, they will say the same thing and they will tell you, what does the word studying mean? The word studying means student dying. You know, this, is a, this is a common phrase that I would hear last time as well. What I'm trying to share with you this morning on this point is that there are many people who live in this world who are alive but are not living. It's as if they are just a corpse that's walking from place to place, going from meal to meal, doing task to task, and they're not thinking, and they, are not, they don't have any aim, they're like the ball, that's in the middle of the ocean and just floating around. That's what a lot of people are living like. But I want to tell you this morning that this description of a person who is dead, yet alive, is also the Christian. A Christian is also someone who is dead, yet alive. How is this the case? 
How is this possible? I want us to read Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And we're going to see from the perspective of Paul, how is it possible that a Christian fits the description of a zombie? Right? Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What I find very interesting about this verse is that Paul makes the claim that he, Paul, has died. Paul has died, and instead, someone else is living in me. If someone comes up to you and tells you that, you might be like, are you okay? Do you need help? You know, like, it doesn't sound right. But let me assure you that Paul is perfectly sane. He's honest. He knows what he's talking about. Paul is saying here that his old self, the former man, the Paul that you used to know before he knew Christ, is gone, is dead. He is no longer alive. And instead, he has allowed Jesus Christ to come into his life. He has allowed Jesus Christ to take control of him, to influence him, and to be the captain of his ship. That is how a Christian can be dead, yet alive at the same time. The Christian has allowed his, his self to die, the old self to die. And a new person is born, and a new person is with Christ. Now, how does this happen? How does this process of dying and reviving takes place? Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 4. And we're going to read these two verses. And after that, I'm going to illustrate with a graphical representation of what this looks like. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 4. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. How we can understand this verse is sometimes best illustrated with this picture. Jesus Christ came to earth for a mission. His mission was to seek and to save the lost. And how he saved the lost is that he died for their sins. He died. He paid the penalty for their sins. And that's where we see he died on the cross. He was crucified on the cross. He bore the penalty for our sins. And he was buried. He was buried in the tomb that didn't even belong to him. And after the third day, he was raised again. When you read Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 4, it is describing the exact same thing, but how we as mankind can obey it. That's called the gospel. That's how we obey the gospel. When we are baptized, when we are immersed in water, we are immersed into his death. So we die. The old self dies. That's what we've been talking about. The old self dies. We are buried with him in baptism. And then we are raised as a new person. And that's where we are raised to walk in newness of life with Christ as our King. My friends and brethren, when we become a Christian, when we start a new life, we get a fresh start. We get a new beginning at life. We get a second chance. All the guilt that you feel from your past burden of sins is gone. It's erased. You get to live with a clean conscience. You get to live with the comfort knowing that God is looking out for you. You get to live with the assurance that when you pray, God is listening to you and He will answer your prayer. You'll be added to the church, a family that will look out for you and treat you like their own. 
there's plenty of joy, and joy will be multiplied when we are dead but alive in Christ. We've talked about three different things today, and I want to close this sermon by just re-examining some of the promises that we can draw from these three points. Jesus' promises, or Jesus promises that, number one, we can be the richest person in heaven while being the poorest man on earth. Like I said earlier, you may have no money whatsoever in your bank account, but if we are rich towards God, that's, that's the only kind of richness that really matters in life. Let's think about our treasure and where it is. Number two, we can be at our strongest in Christ, even though we are at our lowest, weakest, and darkest point. If God is with us, who can be against us? And the strength of the Lord and His arm will be with us. Last but not least, we can feel most alive in Christ as we have died to our old self and our sins have been washed away. This is the promise that Jesus has for everyone who decides to become a Christian. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how weak or frail you might feel or how close to death you are. It doesn't matter how much sin and guilt you have carrying in yourself. You can have it all taken away. You can have yourself renewed and strengthened and be rich. Friends and brethren, Jesus Christ has been turning the world upside down for the past thousands of years, 2,000 years, but today his invitation to you is, will you let him come into your life and let him turn your world upside down? The invitation is open for anyone who wants to become a Christian, to have their life changed. And let me tell you, it's going to be a change that's for the better. And Jesus Christ is not going to be like Adolf Hitler. He's not going to be like the black staff. He's not going to be like any of those horrible things that happen to the world, but he's going to be a force for good and joy in your life. The invitation is open. If you want to know more about Christianity, you can come and ask us. If you have a request, let it be known as we stand and sing the hymn of invitation.